stick, a stone It's the end of the road It's the rest of a stump It's a little alone It's a sliver of glass It is life, it's the sun It is night, it is death It's a trap it's a Welcome to the Extra Credits Podcast where we search for meaning in your favorite movies and shows. I'm Trey. And I'm Kelsey. Today we're talking about what might be the best movie of the 2020s and easily one of my favorite titles in recent memory, and that's Joachim Trier's The Worst Person in the World. Today to join us on our existential journeys in (laughs) Oslo are two writers who are also co-hosts of Beyond the Screenplay, which is a podcast with a very similar theme to our show. So I think you're both going to fit right in today. We are joined by Trisha Arand and Brian Bittner. Welcome. Hi, thanks for having us. Yeah, of course. So Trisha, Brian, can you tell us a little bit about yourselves and about Beyond the Screenplay? Trisha, you're right next to me, so if you want to go first. Uh, Sure. Yeah, so I am a screenwriter and an author and also co-host of this podcast. And um, Mm -hmm. I I don't know, I'm very lucky, I guess, that I feel like I get (laughs) to be a part of any of those industries uh, for a living. And so, uh, and I, I love film. I love getting to talk about movies like this that I think are exceptionally well-written. Um, and of course, well-directed, well-acted. This is such a standout example of a movie. So, and uh, yeah, we, our show Beyond the Screenplay, we do conversational deep dive analyses into a film, one film per episode. Uh, and it's a lot of fun. We get to do sort of an extension of a YouTube channel that uh, is run by one of our other co-host, Michael Tucker. And which is mm-hmm. called Lessons from the Screenplay. So we were doing, you know, video essay analyses, uh, like 10-minute video essays, and then we kind of shifted into doing longer-form analysis uh, on Beyond the Screenplay. Nice. Brian? Uh, yeah, I mean, Trisha covered most of it. Um, I've been, I'm also a writer um, and have also been writing about movies professionally for close to 10 years now. Uh, and then at some point, I hooked up with Michael and the gang, and we started working together and then as Trisha said we sort of transitioned into into mostly doing podcasts at at this point and very excited to talk about this movie with you guys yeah thanks for coming on yeah thanks um I listened to the pod I'd recommend all listeners right now go ahead and check out beyond the screenplay there are a lot of fun movies you guys did I think recently well the last one I listened to was glass onion I believe but I think recently you just did girl with the dragon tattoo is that correct that's correct Mm -hmm. yeah big fincher head uh like we all should be so i recommend people go listen to that um so we connected a few months ago and i sent over some films but i was really hoping you'd pick this one the worst person in the world <laughs> i think you both said you love the movie and we do too and i think this movie is kind of begging for a show like ours and a group like this to explore the story in detail so i want to start with uh Joachim trier um, I have seen the Oslo trilogy. I think me and Kelsey recently just kind of completed that because mm-hmm. we're hoping to have him on one day soon. And he started off with a film reprise and moved on to Oslo August 31st, which are incredible movies. But I wanted to ask you both, do you have a strong relationship to uh, Trier's work or Worst Person specifically? I mean, I saw Thelma, which I know is another one of his recent films. I think that one was from 2017. And I really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that that movie, like it's got, you know, sort of a supernatural darker tone to right. it and definitely didn't prepare me for this 
rom-com coming of age thing <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> whatever we're gonna call yeah, we're this definitely genre. Talk about the yeah genre. let's get into that um yeah. but yeah. anyway yeah it was uh, a unexpected sort of delight I, i'd be very interested in checking out his earlier work um because there's obviously yeah. so much talent here yeah and i haven't mm -hmm. seen anything else um that he's done but i i'm especially rewatching this movie um it was my second time watching it last night um i i really do want to check out his other work especially especially if the other two movies in the trilogy are sort of kind of thematically or totally connected to this um last year i did a uh celine siama marathon after nice. falling in love with portrait lady on fire and it was just like really cool to just start at the first movie and go you know it's all it was only three movies but it was still like i did it i did it all in a day or two or something it was really cool so i kind of want to do that with uh with joaquin trier also yeah that that kind of happened to us with petite maman we really like that oh movie. yeah but yeah trier is one of those special filmmakers who feels like he can find the musicality of filmmaking which is rare and he has this team that comes with him on all of his movies i believe he has five features and they feel incredibly whole and tragic at times mm -hmm. <laughs> which we're going to talk about today but i think why people love his films is because the creatives kind of interrogate these universal flaws and fears that are very human which is why these movies are consistently i think a hit internationally like Joachim Trier's name is pretty famous in obviously like cinephile circles but like even just the average movie goer i do think people know who he is after worst person in the world came out um which is awesome and i think that it is rare especially for international filmmakers and i think it might be because in all of his movies there is a consistent theme of like communicating this collective anxiety about being lost which i guess like in our industrialized world in the middle class can be a privilege but people do share that like existential feeling of being lost and so they've kind of they've kind of honed in on something that people really relate to so my first reaction to watching worst person was uh i think we watched it at home right isn't that right mm -hmm. yeah uh which is rare for us but we watched it at home and it might have been because of the the pandemic and being at a, a bad time but i remember i rarely consume coming of age stories like this that are vulnerable especially about those people who are entering their rookie adult years and it is such a unique way to frame a story that isn't relying on a more commercial formula and i want to talk about a little bit how we all related to uh the film when we first saw it like what were our first reactions because kels i think you you loved it right immediately yeah i i think um I'll, I'll share my first reaction and then also my kind of relationship to the the oslo trilogy because that's all i've seen from trier mm -hmm. but I, the first time I saw it, I, again, it doesn't follow that, that narrative structure that we're used to. And I kept finding myself trying to not predict actively what was happening, but I, I was, I was thinking, okay, this is going to happen because this is what I'm used to seeing in this kind of like coming of age or romantic comedy. Again, I guess we'll talk about the genre, you know, coming up here, but I found myself surprised and just, just getting really comfortable sitting with the, all this um, uncertainty happening in Julie's life. And I, I felt that it was really interesting with the chapters, which again, we'll, we'll get into, but I think I've just been telling everyone who does love Worst Person in the World because it's a fascinating film and it's beautifully shot. That was also another thing that, that yes. struck me mm -hmm. yeah. uh, to go watch his previous movies, Reprise and August 31st, uh, Oslo, which is the Oslo trilogy, because in all those movies, he seems to explore this idea of 
how people maybe have a disconnect between who they are right now, like the reality that they're living versus who they think they will be or who they thought they would be uh, later on in life. And I think that's fascinating. Yeah. Was this a, what about you both? Was this like an immediate favorite for you two? Yeah, definitely for me. Um, I sort of keep a uh, kind of not really superficial, but just out of curiosity for myself, a ranking of movies as I watched them for the year. And mm-hmm. this was my number five um, for 2021. But watching it again last night, I'm like, it's like two probably. It's really two. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> And I don't, I don't know if Coda, I don't know if anything will, will push Coda out of number one for me, but, uh, this one is <laughs> it's very close. Um, and, uh, and, and yeah, I just think that like, it's a really entertaining film and it's a really moving film. Um, my, my partner actually lost a partner to pancreatic cancer, um, before, you know, obviously before she and I met, but, um, but not long before she and I met within a couple of years or something like that. So the ending for her just was really, really powerful, you know? And, and for me, it was, um, I think if there was anything negative about the movie for me, the first time was, I didn't know where it was going from sort of scene mm-hmm. to scene, you know, it's like, cause if it's a rom-com, you're like, are they going to get together? But I'm like, I don't even know <laughs> who I want her to, to be with or if anybody, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but then watching it for a second time where I knew it was going and especially knowing sort of how Oxel was going to come back in to the story in the third act, you know, I was, it was like really easy for me to just be completely compelled by the movie the whole way through. So it's, it's, it's a great rewatch. It's a great watch. It's a great rewatch. Absolutely. I remember feeling at the point where you hear that Axel is sick um just like i'd gotten the wind knocked out of me mm. and uh you know similar to you guys are describing i'm just like what is this movie now <laughs> like, right. i was so yeah, yeah. i was so sure that the movie was going to focus on you know career like finding yourself in your career or some kind of um you know in in a relationship in a different kind of relationship or making a decision about children that that was going to be kind of the resolution for the character and mm-hmm. when i realized that it was also about mortality these little things um <clears throat> i was just like <laughs> no you're going to do this to me now like i can't i can't believe it's going to confront such heavy themes um but of course, why shouldn't it? And it is also interesting, you know, we're, we're used to seeing uh, characters who do need to confront mortality. They, they need to confront it in a grandparent that's dying, or perhaps, you know, they have a sudden brush with death themselves, and suddenly that changes their perspective. It's very rare that you get this situation where it's a I can't even think of another example of like a former romantic partner that then becomes sick. It's just such Mm -hmm. a specific situation that ends up holding such resonance um, for the character and the themes. And I'm just so excited to dive into that. But I mean, yeah, so much crying the first time around, (laughs) the second time around. This time I was just a disaster uh, for basically the last 40 minutes of it. Uh, It's so powerful. Yeah, there were a really, well, my first reaction was that there are a lot of movies about a woman's journey or a coming of age journey that were in a similar light that year, which was like this movie, Licorice Pizza, Spencer, The Novice, Emma, I think there were a lot of movies around that time that were sometimes successfully, sometimes unsuccessfully talking about a coming of age journey. But I remember Mm -hmm. this one just standing out 
among the rest. Um, and in recent memory, I can't think of a, a better adult coming of age story. In fact, I was struggling to like actually, and speak, speaking of rankings, Brian, like I, I'm a crazy letterbox Ted. So I like, I make rankings of like <laughs> everything just to organize all of the movies that we watch. Um, and I was trying to do like organizing coming of age journeys that aren't for teenagers, uh, or about teenagers. Right. And that is, a, it's a rare few. And that's mm-hmm. where I think this movie really stands out and where it is subversive is in that immortality, which we're going to get into when we get to the genres, because I think that's a confusing conversation. Well, yeah, you keep expecting it to go one way, like you were saying, Trisha, but ultimately it kind of explores what is worthy in life to pursue the narratives that we kind of tell ourselves, the kind of distorted reflections that we have of life, but also goals that we have in life. And it's so fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, And a lot of that starts with the screenplay because Trier and his writing partner, Eskel Vogt, who worked on all the movies together are obsessed with time. And they're very Mm -hmm. clear about that. They, they love how time can be cinematic. And a lot of their film inspirations for this movie were about the transience of life and, and like their inspirations being something like um, Hiroshima Mona Moore or Eight and a Half or mm-hmm. uh, Bergman and Romare movies, like a lot of French New Wave stuff, a lot of 40s through 60s international cinema and basically different waves of movies that kind of liberated audiences. And it's something that they've kind of dedicated their lives to doing into like their 30s and 40s is trying to like provoke international audiences and engage them which i think is why his movies are a hit because american audiences are often like sanitized have these like sanitized versions of rom-coms uh with similar themes and sometimes we can get like or a spectacle driven a rom-com depending on like what ip it belongs to so it's a good sign i think that trier's work is popular here he's talked about different influences he's had from american filmmakers like a the, the normal ones like a scorsese or a de palma but he's also talked about Mike Mills, which Kelsey loved. Yeah, I love Twentieth Century Woman. So yeah, I can oh, see yeah. That yeah. It'll be interesting to see if he chooses to make another movie in English, um, because yeah. I know he does have at least one, and so I think it'd be cool. You know, you mentioned his work being popular. Like, I'm sure it's popular among <laughs> uh, among cinemaphiles, but I I do not think you could call it popular. You can't say this, you know, you can't say welcome to or somebody in a bar. <laughs> they don't yeah. know who this is. Uh, even if they might have heard of this film in particular, they, the filmmaker himself is not well known here. And so if you, but no, I but think like, if I love, make... I love lim- Nymphomaniac and, and uh, Melancholia. <laughs> exactly. I'd be like, no, wrong, wrong trigger. <laughs> that is what they would say. But yeah, I think if he would make another movie in English, like, I think that would be you know, if it was exactly like this, but in English and starring Americans, it would be more accessible. Not that it's not that anybody should need that, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but just that it it might bring him some of the more of the recognition that he would deserve. And then hopefully perhaps more budget, right? Because with recognition comes budget and more possibilities in terms of filmmaking. Yeah. Something along those lines uh, that I think is interesting with this movie is, you know, this movie isn't called Julie grows up right? It's called (laughs) the worst person in the world, you know? And I think that that is an attractive title to American audiences. And what I like about this movie is that it's not what the American version of that title would be, where the the cover is her, you know, passed out with the wine bottle and, you know, there's a, who knows what, right? Like, you know, she goes Mm -hmm. to the party and she sneaks into the party and then she like pukes in the flower pot or something. Right. And it's just like, we're going to show you just like (laughs) this piece of crap human and you're going to care about him by the end. Right. And this movie is just like, (laughs) you know, she, she's very self-centered and, you know, tells like, 
tells a mother her kid's gonna be a drug addict and stuff like that you know and, and sort of just yeah. leaves her partners whenever she kind of feels like it but like that's the worst thing she's doing you know you're like right you are still it's still pretty easy to empathize her with with her most of the way even if you're like okay that was a pretty self-centered thing you did and you know you want her to kind of learn her lesson by the end and that's why that tonal shift with axel in the third act is so powerful because the mm -hmm. movie the movie is going hey guess what you don't get to you don't get to just kind of chill and do whatever you want anymore because someone you know is dying and someone mm -hmm. you care deeply right. about is dying and then the movie, you know, the movie doesn't suddenly become like a really serious, weepy drama, but the movie takes a tonal shift where it's not just like, hey, here's some fun, you know, um, you know, blowjob uh, jokes or whatever, <laughs> like is going on in kind of yeah. the first part of the movie. Right. Um, and uh, but but yeah, I, I do like that. It sort of walks this cool line between a very on the nose American, what I would call American movie, sort of mainstream movie, where it's like, look at this really self-centered person. They're going to learn their lesson. They're going to go to their kids play at the end and everything's going to be fine. Right. Versus being like a really arty, just no structure kind of whatever movie. It, it's, it walks that line really beautifully, I think. I think that it, it's interesting that it, since it was nominated for an Oscar, I think more people saw it than normally would. And that's cool mm -hmm. that a lot of people had kind of like put their foot in a, a different depiction of what we would see of normal coming of age stories. Like you're saying, we get these different, more existential questions from this character. And and also I think the the idea of her feeling like she is the worst person in the world with I think which I think Joachim Trier said, you know, that's what he wanted to investigate how I think it's a saying in um, Norway in Norway yeah. that yeah. it's kinda like if you bump into someone, he's explained that you're like, Oh, I'm the worst person in the world, you know. Yeah. Uh but also how we often spend a lot of time in our heads um, just throughout our lives in different periods and can think uh, of ourselves as like the worst person in the world. And I love how this movie is really messy um, and investigates that. And even though you see moments of her being selfish, you also empathize with her. And when she's, you know, making those, those jokes about the, the mom uh, cuddling her child mm. and how <laughs> it's a joke with herself, <laughs> you know, an inside joke with right. herself where she says, if you cuddle your kid, they're going to become a drug addict. Mm -hmm. We're like, that is from a really dark place, you know, and we see that again when she lashes out. Yeah, I almost feel like the sibling to this movie in the United States is probably Francis Ha. If I had to compare Ooh. it to something, it feels mm -hmm. like more in that realm, that bound back Gerwig Realm. Although I don't think Trier would make Barbie, though that would be sick. Uh, <laughs> the worst doll in the world. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, but both of these these uh, writers, uh, Vogt and Trier, are interested in, I guess, just trying to make sure that, that people are reflecting on things like mortality, which is a lot, mm -hmm. uh, in all of their movies. And their first few, like you guys have said, you haven't seen them yet. When you do see them, it is, uh, I think, all the emotional beats from this movie but way more, I think, melancholic even, and mm -hmm. it, sometimes even more depressing, which I'm glad that he, it's funny because we watch this as an American audience, and I think we look at the worst person in the world as kind of really disturbing at the end. It's like a lot to take in, um, but he views this movie as like solely like a romantic comedy with some lessons at the end, but like this is not the way American audiences would describe a rom-com, yeah. I think, traditionally, <laughs> um, even though I think he he does see the the romantic sides of this movie even if even if we can only sometimes see it so we should probably talk about genre for a second because 
I don't want to try to fit worst person in a box, but I think this is probably the most impressive coming of age movie I've, I've seen in a long time. And I know it's only been out a year or so, but this is like a humorous, warm story about someone trying to figure out who they are and what they want to do with their life. And, and kind of showing and illustrating a chaos that is born out of anxiety and self-interest, especially when you're met with this like existential uh, mortality toward the end of the movie. And it's basically like the darkest coming of age story I've seen because of that. And it's like in this interesting tier of like a dark coming of age mm-hmm. movie. And then on top of that, it's also a rom-com. It has like dark romantic comedic elements. And again, that's not something the U S I think does well or even tries to do. And so Trier really tried to create something that was less tired and corny and following a formula about a romantic film where like uh, something like more commercial that is about soulmates or something that is notebook-esque. Um, and I think what works to me about this movie is that it has uh, the sensibilities of like an about time, like Richard Curtis's film. Like we love that. Yeah, I don't know rom-com. if you all have seen that. Mm-hmm. Um, about connection and bad timing and, and just timing via being everything uh, with love. But there's also this kind of like uh, the blend of the dark coming of age and the dark comedy just like really works uh, so well. And there's nothing really as dark in about time like a like this movie. Mm-hmm. But there's a third layer, like almost like a third genre to this, which I think will be an interesting conversation for us to have, which is, is this kind of like a generational portrait movie? Uh, because there is mm-hmm. like a subtle internet generation thing going on there are these like um stresses that julie feels for having like infinite choices and opportunities and they're often not like uh externalized like she is kind of uh like shot in front of the beautiful oslo like landscape and she seems like indifferent about everything that she has and all of the opportunities and maybe even resources that she has. And I found myself really shocked on rewatch the other night, how nuanced and careful it is in illustrating kind of this generation, internet generation person who is trying to sustain a sense of identity in the internet or social media landscape. But it's also not, the movie isn't showing us an app. It's not really showing her like texting or Googling and instead, they try to write the story out in chapters to feel like how our brains feel on the right, internet. It's disjointed. Yeah, it's narrative. like fragmented. Um, and kind of what Brian is saying, it's hard to keep track of like where we're going or where we are and how quickly we just moved far ahead in the timeline. And I thought that was really smart to explore what the internet makes us feel like. It kind of reminded me of this year's Everything Everywhere All at Once mm-hmm. in that way, because those are very similar themes and it's shot in kind of a similar edited way not obviously not <laughs> a similar movie no, yeah I know it's it's they're funny comparisons but I I know what you're talking about this kind of like nihilism yeah but interrogation hope? yeah <laughs> of whether or not you should be nihilistic when you have all the opportunities in the world mm-hmm. uh I think this so I, I do think this movie will maybe be claimed by millennials or uh, internet generation you know there's many of them of them but it does feel like to me that this is like a even though it has the dark rom-com elements, even though it has this kind of coming of age element, I read it most, I think, as a as a snapshot of a generational anxiety. Where did you all find yourselves like thinking this movie fit when you were trying to, I mean, because we do tend to just naturally do that. Even though, if, you know, if Joachim Trier heard this conversation, he'd probably be pissed off that we were trying to <laughs> fit his movie into a Put genre in a box, or a yeah. box. But <laughs> did you find yourselves kind of like interpreting it in one specific genre? I mean, I think that you're hitting on it right there because 
uh, with the general generational portrait idea, although I do not do not think that that is a genre per se, because genre is more about like story beats and it is about themes, but it's also about the structure of a film and everything like that. And generational portrait mm -hmm. can be almost anything. Um, but I do think that you can't have a coming of age movie and divorce it from the coming of age of a particular person uh, in a particular time period. And so the fact that this film grounds itself really clearly in it, in our particular time period, um, you know, at the very end, we get the very be at the very end of the movie, we get the very beginnings of the pandemic when she's working mm -hmm. on set and everybody's wearing masks and everything like that. Um, and then, you know, as you point out, there's not, the technology in the film isn't made much of uh, from a narrative standpoint, but it plays an integral part in the way that the characters relate to each other. And mm -hmm. like we have, you know, Julie and um, I'm sorry, what's his name? Ivan's looking at his ex's Instagram. And then like, she accidentally mm -hmm. likes one of his, you know, one mm -hmm. of the posts and it becomes like this little moment. And <laughs> um, you know, she's running on the treadmill. That's yeah. That's yoga. Yeah. She, She's running on the treadmill and uh, she sees, you know, Axel doing the podcast essentially or on TV. And there's these moments, uh, especially too, thinking about um, Ivan's ex-girlfriend and her relationship to like climate change and other kinds of, you know, environmental concerns that she has. All of these things are hallmarks of millennials and there's, the part of the disconnect between her and Axel as well is a generational gap. You know, Julie is 29 when we first meet her in this movie. And as Axel points out, he's 42. Um, and again, we don't exactly know how much time the movie spans. Uh, we have one birthday. Julie has one birthday um, during mm -hmm. the course of the movie, but we know that years are passing or we have a sense of time passing. So I think coming of age is, is probably exactly right. But there's a, a specificity to the way that Julie is dealing with coming of age. Um, and to your exact mm -hmm. point, right? It's about anxiety um, around all of these issues, like not just around technology, but sort of everything everybody always says about millennials and all of our the many problems that we have <laughs> by being raised <laughs> in the world that we were raised in, you know, with all of this possibility, but actually no possibility in so many ways, especially yeah. as a creative, right? There's also this like very specific world to the, you know, careers that uh, Julie and Axel are pursuing. Uh, or not pursuing in, in so many cases where we're working in a bookstore, we're writing an internet blog article that was shared widely on social media and made Julie very popular for a while. So all of these things are, are knit into the fabric of the movie and the themes. Um, and I think that reading it through that lens is crucial in order to have a conversation about it. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll add to that. Um, you know, I think, I think the sort of generational portrait is a nice, just kind of layer of this movie is, you know, as you said, Trisha, it's sort of, it's knit into the fabric of the movie, but I don't think it matters in the sense that I don't think it's a movie that's going to feel dated in 20 years. Cause we're like, mm. what is a blog or whatever, you know, right. it does it. Cause it's not trying to be like, look, look, it's TikTok. Look, it's this, look, it's this. It's mm -hmm. just like, those are just sort of <laughs> things that are in these people's lives, you know? And, and, and to a large degree, as I think you said, Trisha, that it doesn't do too much of that. Right. It's not, we're not seeing like lots of technology happening all the time. Um, 
but then in terms of, yeah, in terms of the genre, um, I, it's not something I think about enough. Uh, and I'm kind of glad I don't specifically with this movie because I don't, I don't care if that makes sense. Um, but yeah, thinking yeah. about it, it's like, um, you know, rom-com, at least for, for American audiences means usually it's about two people and usually they end up together at the end, right? Um, this is a movie, in my mind, a movie about Julie, really. Um, and I think you could say it's kind of a rom-drom where it's like, yeah, it's a funny movie, but it's sort of more about the kind of the dramatic elements. But I think it's really, really a movie about her. And that's why I like Coming of Age or Quarter Life Crisis or something like that as kind mm -hmm. of the, the overarching thing, you know? And if you look at, because this movie does have plot beats in sort of traditional places they just are a little masked so it's like she meets Ivan I think right around the um about a third of the way in yep. and she flips mm -hmm. the light switch about 10 minutes before the midpoint but then the end of sort of her and Axel's breakup is the midpoint so it's almost like this whole midpoint sequence that lasts for about 10 minutes and then she finds out that Axel's sick you know right about two-thirds of the way in the movie so it's like but but also her Julie's priorities change at each of those beats, I think. So it's like, we see this prologue where it's like, she just changes her mind about, you know, everything. boyfriends and jobs and everything, <laughs> all whatever, right? And then kind of early in the movie, she's like, but I like this guy, let's actually be in a relationship, even though there's that sort of tension there. It's really hard for her to be around a happy family, which is like a hilarious, like, I know it's I know it's really hard for you to be here. It's like, oh, you poor thing. Yeah. Um, and then of course, <laughs> you know, then she meets Ivan and she's like, oh, maybe I care more about this thing. And then at the midpoint, she's like, yeah, I am gonna, mm -hmm. I am gonna kind of give up my committed thing to go after this other thing, or even just cause I don't wanna be part of this thing. And then, of course, at the crisis, when Axel's sick, now she has to sort of have her final change of priorities. And at the end of the movie, she's not really with anybody. She is happy, happily watching Ivan out the out the window with the family and going, that's fine, because, because again, it's about what she needed and not necessarily what she wanted. Well, and just one more point on the, the generational portrait thing, which is that the movie isn't interested in assigning blame for Julie's problems on mm -hmm. the time period she was born in or the social situation or the technology that she's dealing with. Like those things inform her crises and her various mm -hmm. uh, foibles, I guess, if you will, or flaws. But the movie isn't trying to like, I feel like a movie like Everything Everywhere All at Once is like, look what TikTok did to Gen Z. They're so <laughs> right. sad. And like, or not not quite to that extent, but um, it, it definitely is interacting more directly with like, here is a really difficult thing the generation is trying to deal with and look at how they're struggling because of the thing that they were given. And I, this movie mm -hmm. is not at all like that. Those those elements of yeah Julie's particular time period, and I think one of the most interesting sequence, little mini sequences in it, is when it, it goes back through her like her mother, her grandmother, her great grandmother mm -hmm. did this, her great 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 yes. grandmother did this, her great 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 grandmother did this. So it's it's not leaving those things out of Julie's story, but it, there's this universality to it, as you're pointing out, Brian, where. Um, it's not going to feel like only millennials can relate to this if you understand the specific situation she grew up in. The movie is not blaming anything of what's happening to Julie on any of these external factors. They're, they make 
her potentially more relatable. They inform who she is. They have formed who she is. But it isn't trying to, yeah, say like, oh my God, she's of course she can't make up her mind about her career because of the this thing that happened. It all of that right. is just yeah. all of that is just a part of a complex portrait that's being painted. Yeah, one of the ways, one of the reasons I was thinking about basically genrefying this movie is because what Brian said at the top is I found myself on the first watch struggling to find my footing mm. and on second watch I just let it completely uh take over me the movie mm -hmm. take over me mm -hmm. and it worked better um I, I really liked it the first time it was in the top 10 movies of last year or 2021 for me um but after watching it the second time and trying to just not care about trying to fit it in a box because my mind is warped about that <laughs> I found myself just falling in love with this very odd chapter style so should probably get into the structure before getting into the yeah. story the film is divided into a prologue there are 12 chapters and then there is an epilogue and it's all told through what seems to be julie's perspective and it switches between like subjective experiences there are some voyeuristic shots which trier comes back to in all of his movies mm -hmm. there are abstract moments that are going to be a lot of fun to talk about and there is even like a narrator who I guess acts as Julie's subconscious. I'm, I'm not super clear on whether that is the case, but it seems like that's what's happening with the narration. And then there's this kind of like linear timeline uh, that isn't a traditional narrative formula, but it, it does make it unique because it does jump around, but you kind of know where you're at for the most part. And in most of Trier's work, he's using these like novelistic tropes to have freedom with structure and play with tone. Uh, which again is, I think, a pretty shocking experience to the average moviegoer who saw this at the time. I remember that being a big deal, which is that a lot of young people were on Letterboxd saying, I've never seen a coming-of-age movie like this. I've never seen something broken into chapters like this, mm -hmm. even though it's obviously heavy, heavily inspired from older films. But in terms of the structure, I think it's... Uh, I think what I found most fascinating from like just a marketing perspective, like how difficult it is to sell a film in chapters because so many people watch movies so they don't have to read books. So that was like my first thought when <laughs> seeing the chapters on screen that I knew a lot of people are going to be uh, thrown off by that. But you really, I think it becomes pretty seamless very quickly. And I think a lot of that is due to the editing um, because there's a lot of purposeful and immediate cuts through the chapters that makes for this like fulfilling experience that uh, almost like ends like a novel because you're left trying to identify the imagined and like fill the gaps between timelines or the characters and like what happened to them in the epilogue. So I found myself being surprised because I'm usually pretty indifferent about chapters, but I, I really liked them. How did you all feel about the story structure and, and going from the prologue to chapters to epilogue? I'll say quickly that I like that it told me how many chapters there were going to be. I'm always someone who likes yeah. sort of knowing where I am, you know, and I remember uh, seeing the favorite in the theater and it says like, yeah. you know, part one or whatever. And I'm like, okay, of, of yeah. three acts of five acts of what I think it ends up being nine or something. Right. So I'm just kind of like constantly going like these numbers kind of don't mean anything, but when it says, Hey, there's going to be a prologue, there's going to be an epilogue, there's going to be 12 chapters. I'm like, <laughs> great. Then every chapter, I kind of know where we are. And I think it's the third or fourth chapter that's um, oral sex in the age of me too, which is like, a three minute chapter or something right and it's kind of like oh okay this is fun like i like that you're going to kind of be a little playful with your own format and that kind of thing um but yeah i also agree with you that it sort of 
it feels seamless. I think once you're used to it, you know, it's not like I, we've never seen movies that do this before. Um, but I do like that it kind of, you know, there's a cut to black and there's a bit of a scene and then it tells you what the chapter is going to be. So it's sort of like a nice end of moment and then kind of like a nice cold, almost cold open transition into the new moment. And it does, especially in a movie that feels like, as Trisha said, it's taking place over years that we don't really know. It gives it a nice sense of like, meanwhile, or, you know, later on, this scene mm-hmm. happens, right? So there, there's kind of a nice, it's kind of a nice separation to the chapters. And I, and I like that it, I like the way that it breaks the movie up. I think the structure works really well. Uh, again, structure, um, chapters like this can feel gimmicky. Uh, I love the favorite and I, I think the chapters work really well there. And that this movie reminded mm-hmm. me of that. Um, but I think overall the chapters don't bother me here and they do create a sense of time passing. I would say this movie, I would not say that it feels like a novel necessarily because it's so visual, um, that it it doesn't, I don't know, it doesn't have that sort of, uh, pace to it that you expect from a slow novel. It always feels like it's moving and it does have a momentum to it. Um, so I wouldn't say Mm -hmm. necessarily that, but I think it works fine. The narrator piece, I think, is really interesting. It really reminded me of the narrator and Amelie. And actually, there are a few things in this movie that really reminded me of Amelie uh, in the tone as well, uh, which is one of my favorite films. And yeah, so this movie's I like think, Naughty Amelie. Right, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it certainly has some elements of that. Um, but yeah, that that sense of like, we are being told this story by someone potentially outside of Julie, but very focused on her POV and the way that she experiences things. There is not a scene, I don't think, without her in it at all. Um, It's like every time we come back in, we're still with her, we're with her, we're following what's happening. Um, uh, Yeah, there are no scenes without her in them. There's um, uh, Ivan camping with... when it starts out with kind of but it it does connect back to her because it's kind of telling us where Ivan is at in his life you know when he encounters Julie so it it makes more sense within the fold of her trajectory right and I do think the interesting thing about that sequence is we have the narrator back again and it almost feels like this is a story Mm -hmm. that Julie knows right so like even if right as this narrator sort of acting like a disembodied voice the protagonist it feels like Julie is maybe telling us this story of like, well, then when I, then Ivan told me everything that happened to him. Um, and she's kind of like summing it up about all of his guilt and everything. So anyway, I think it, I think it works really well. And again, keeping us with her um, helps it feel more structured. It helps it feel like the story is being told with a, a very clear trajectory. Yeah. I, I liked it too. Um, I think that, there are a lot of moments that are, are essentially like disjointed memories or uh, experiences mm-hmm. from Julie's life. Mm-hmm. And the chapters make it feel like there is structure. And then we can, we basically feel those moments at the end, kind of like, I think when you're saying the novel, it, it's similar to after I read a novel, I feel like the experiences that I read or the scenes that I'm seeing on screen in a movie situation um, are sitting with me in a similar way. And, um, mm. and I think the, the disjointed sequences within chapters allowed that, that feeling to happen at the end where I, you know, I love the movies where 
when Trey and I go to see something, we just sit in the theater or sit on our couch for a moment after because we have to just take in what we saw. Not every time. That sounds a little psychotic. <laughs> well, you know, you know, you're like waiting. You're like, I'm gonna watch these credits. I don't yeah. have the, the yeah. urge to just get up and move we, on. We with did my that life. recently. I think it was with Corsage. Yeah, that, yeah. that was a really good movie. <laughs> um, yeah, I I did find myself doing that with these chapters. I guess the reason why I was like a little off on chapters at first is because uh, when they're not done effectively, it does feel like what Trisha's saying a little bit gimmicky. And mm-hmm. I think I felt that I love the favorite, but I think I felt that in um, was it Jordan Peele's Nope this year that it has. Well, yeah, chapters. sometimes you're wondering what is this? Yeah. What does the chapter mean? What does the title mean? And if it doesn't come together in the end, uh, yeah. then sometimes it feels. Un- basically not not deserved yeah or maybe not as meaningful it doesn't add something to the story i just chose horse names Um, and named chapters after them art yeah we're not gonna get into nope right now (laughs) brian (laughs) yeah yeah that's a whole other pod i I love nope and i love jordan peele but yeah i was a little bit um still confused about that but we did four hours of covering that movie on this podcast it doesn't need any more free advertising uh so let's probably let's just get into these chapters let's talk about them the story before we get into the extra credits Yeah. So before we do our extra credits, I think it will be helpful because there's so much in this movie and we follow Julie through all these different experiences and relationships with herself, with other people. I thought we could section off the, the different chapters, maybe into acts, even though obviously that's what Joachim Trier doesn't want us to to do probably, but Mm -hmm. just for the, the sake of kind of organizing our thoughts. So, um, I want to talk about the prologue and epilogue separately, but let's go ahead and start with with the prologue. So we open this movie to this beautiful shot of Renata Renzva as Julie overlooking Oslo. And we have all these party sounds in the background, the chatter, the piano music. Yes. And we slowly zoom in on Julie and the music fades out and we just hear her sigh and we have that, that title card drop. Um, and then when we, when we get to the prologue, and we have Julie kind of figuring out what she wants to do for her career and where she feels fulfilled and valued. She leaves medical school to go study psychology, then to pursue for per, then to pursue photography, and she meets Axel um, Anders uh, Danielson Lee, I believe. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, um, and, and we see these conflicts arise about them being at different stages at the very beginning of the movie in this prologue. And, and then it develops into that montage of the romantic comedy. So I was wondering what you all thought of the prologue and how it establishes the, or begins the trajectory of these characters and kind of the conflict that Julie and Axel will, will go through throughout this movie. I mean, yeah, real quick, I just, you know, I, I think I already said that like, it's just a, such a nice overture of what we're going to see specifically in Julie, like just showing us her sort of, her <laughs> caring more about herself than than others and the character arc that she kind of needs to go on and and it's kind of mm-hmm. a fun like it's like a the Margot Tenenbaum file you know <laughs> where it's just like here's yeah. here's every like beat of her life uh up until now and it's just a really nice way to kind of get us into into the style of the movie but also into the character herself and you know it's nice to have again we're going back to like feeling oriented in the movie um having that opening scene of her at the party and everything, we know that we're coming up on a turning point. So when the movie backtracks to the prologue and starts telling us about all of her different um, 
ambitions that she's dropped uh, or like different, you know, life choices that she's just let go of or not followed through on, we know that we are getting to something that is going to affect her, the trajectory of her life. We're coming up to a turning point and it takes a while to get back there, right? It takes quite a while yeah. to get back there because we have a whole relationship with Axel first uh, before we end up back at that party, but right before she walked out. And so mm -hmm. I think that keeping that, it's a nice little framing device it's interesting that the movie doesn't do more, right? Like <clears throat> that could be a whole scene where we see her like walking down through Oslo and feeling, yeah, looking yeah. dissatisfied with her life. It could give us a lot more of that sequence. It chooses not to. It's just this little image. Um, and it, you know, invites like curiosity. It doesn't provide more than it really needs to. Um, other than, yeah, than the title card, the worst person in the world. And so she doesn't look like the worst person in the world, but what is she about to do, yeah. right? And so <laughs> that that question gets raised in the mind of the viewer very early on. And I think it's artful and like everything else in this movie, done with a very nice lightness of touch. Yeah, I my first thought actually was the technical side of the filmmaking. It was like, when the movie opens and you're seeing Oslo in the backdrop and I understand thematically what that's supposed to represent with the sigh and the worst person in the world title card drop. But I found myself, uh, even on our, you know, 4k, maybe not 4k TVs being like, <laughs> uh, is this one of the most beautiful shots I've seen in years? The color palette yeah. is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. I know it's shot on 35, but the film grain is coming through our TV, which is like, I just made a joke about not the best TV in the world. So I was surprised how incredible it looked. Um, and that's really what stood out to me in this, this like rewatch was just, I think the technical side of the filmmaking, the cinematography was fantastic. The editing got you adjusted very quickly. Cause there is a lot of sharp editing. Um, and I found that the sound work, and I think it's maybe because we watched behind the scenes and, and prep for this, but there was a lot of specificity in the sound design. Mm -hmm. Like I think in that opening shot before the title card sequence, you can hear the party and it kind of, like what you were saying, it kind of fades out and you just hear her kind of sighing. And uh, that just really works for me on rewatch. So I love um, this kind of opening. And I also just love the prologue for seeing that she is this kind of like middle-class uh lost person because her mom has like a great house oh yeah <laughs> when she's telling like her mom mm -hmm. that you know hey i think i want to do something differently and you're looking around at this home that she's in i'm like this is like a really nice uh situation she's in well the house they stay at on the lake is also ridiculous yeah <laughs> like, yeah i was like this house yeah. seems fine your whole life you like everyone that you know seems like they're living they're doing great yeah, yeah. It made me want to move to Norway for a second. Oh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I loved uh, the environment. I loved the setting. I loved the questions. It's already asking us to ask, which is like, is this person like a terrible person? Which is just something that we're kind of taught and like to a certain extent with using a woman in this as a character in this way and like how we're already socialized in other films to already kind of be doubting this character and not giving her the same benefit of a doubt of the traditional lost man in a coming of age story. Mm -hmm. I thought that was really smart because she does go through a lot in these next two acts of this movie. Yeah, she kind of, I mean, it also establishes Julie as a, a character too, right? Like she is changing different careers which uh if the viewer's like oh okay she's you know changing it up a lot she's unsure but also she has or the the dialogue of or I guess it's the narrator at this point that says she felt this like gnawing unease mm -hmm. you know about life and she was drowning that uneasiness in cramming for tests or uh or whatever it was and so I think that's also like a a piece of 
empathy or people can relate to this idea of like maybe not knowing what you want to do but she's just continuously you're watching her throughout this movie throughout the chapters trying to find a way to either uh escape this feeling of unease that she has at the beginning of the movie um or or maybe uh succumbing to it and being like cruel or Mm -hmm. or joking out of it and um and we have that moment of where she says like when was life supposed to start because she feels like all these new kind of things that she's doing whether it's photography or you know these beginnings she felt like that was when life was supposed to start so I thought that was so interesting and I think so then let's go ahead and talk about what I'll call act one um I think when we are in chapter one through four, so before Axel and her break up, we are observing Julie as she's trying to find herself still and uh, further developing this relationship with Axel. So we have the chapter one with the others where they're visiting Axel's friends. And it's a great, it's a great couple scenes there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The party. Yeah, it's funny. And then we have the cheating chapter two, uh, chapter three, the oral sex and the age of me too. And chapter four, our, uh, our own family, which is Julie's 30th birthday. Yes. And so I wanted to ask you all what you thought about the others, uh, chapter first, just thinking about this, this idea uh, that Julie talks about later on that her and Axel were not going to be together anymore because of all the old arguments. And we kind of see the old argument that they're having and on surface, you know, it's about not wanting kids or not, but also we see that they're kind of on different pages and different places in, in their life. Yeah. I, I thought, I thought it was well done. I, I liked the kind of like, uh, the introduction to these different generational divides that we're going to come back to at the end of the movie. There's, there's also this cool thematic moment that happens where the, um, the couple who's like fighting, you know, and they can hear them through the walls and everything like that. She sees them the next day, just kind of out on the dock and they're having a little cuddle, you nice. know, and, and she, she kind of smiles. And I think that it's like, it really kind of sets up what she is prepared for at this point in her life and what she's not, you know? And, and I think mm-hmm. to have Axel be older is interesting because Axel's like, look, I've gone through all of this and I'm ready to kind of settle down. She's kind of in a place as we've seen in the prologue of just, I want to, I want to, do what makes me happy in the moment, you know? So having a kid is a permanent thing, right? So now I'm committing to not only this relationship, but now to, to having to care, uh, you know, for a child. Um, And I think it's like, it's a nice, maybe like mini learning moment for her that she, that she kind of hears them arguing and you can tell that she's like, nope, glad I'm not one of those people. But then she sees them (laughs) in the dock and she's like, oh, wait, there is like, that was just temporary. This is their real relationship mm-hmm. right here, you know? Um, but she's not ready for that yet. So I think it's an inter- it's a really interesting sort of, you know, the best way to show who a character is, is show them, is put them in a scene with characters who they aren't, right? And that's what we get in that in the others. Yeah. It basically establishes Julie's flaw, if we can call it that, uh, sort of a traditional screenwriting concept um, right up front, which is that Julie's not willing to do work or she doesn't want to do work. You know, you hit on it right mm-hmm. there, Brian, where she just wants to kind of have fun mm-hmm. and do whatever makes her happy in the moment. And arguments are work. And, you know, we as audience members, actually, in, interestingly enough, in our films, don't like to do work either. <laughs> we don't like to be challenged with complex emotions. <laughs> we don't like to see people in unhappy relationships that drag on forever. We're just like, okay, what's the next thing? Show us the next thing in the movie that's going to be fun and entertaining. Um, we don't go to movies to do work on ourselves or uh, you know, to see characters do work on themselves either. Um, and so I think it kind of sets that up as a really nice like thematic 
uh, I don't know, point that we'll come back to at, a, at different times in the movie when we do see characters having other arguments and working through really serious issues that require work, um, unlike everything else Julie prefers to do. Yeah, and I think that it, it's always a funny moment to see a scene like they're having this really heavy, like big conversation um, right before they're going to bed, kind of like whispering, uh, yelling in someone else's house. And so it's a really like, heightened conversation in that moment even though they've probably had that conversation many times but uh it becomes kind of unhealthy because of uh he's asking her for something specific um to tell him like what is it that you need and she's obviously not you know in the space to articulate that right now and maybe wasn't you know in a, in a different conversation but it was just really um like funny to to see that uh that space and those situations in that conversation and I think that can bring us then to, you know, the second chapter where we have the cheating scene and we come back to seeing her looking over Oslo and it, the chapter card drops the cheating. And I was like, no, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when that yeah. came up. Um, but I was wondering what you all thought of this, because when I first saw this cheating experiment scene and this idea of where do they draw the line? I thought it was fascinating to play with these social rules and uh, this like ethical dilemma because they are ultimately doing intimate things. Yeah, I uh, didn't realize that um, that <laughs> I didn't realize that this this sequence was going to be as funny as it was. Like when they, mm -hmm. she first entered the room, I was very tonally confused the first time I watched this because I was like, okay, I feel like it's going to be kind of sad because she's about to cheat on the guy we just met who seems kind of nice. And they're just talking about having kids. And then when they, when she starts talking to Ivan, the actor is so great. I'm mm -hmm. forgetting his name, but he, the performer is fantastic. Yeah. And apparently he was in uh, comedy movies before, yeah. which makes total sense. Yeah. True yeah. found him in like Norwegian Has comedies. Great energy. Yeah. And he, I guess he was a theater actor too. And you can feel that. But when, <laughs> when he asks her, he's like, you know, like, what do you do? And she was like, that's like so boring or whatever. Uh, I was like, Oh, we're really going somewhere else. Yeah, now. I hate this those is questions. fascinating. Yeah. yeah. It's like a Harry met Sally moment or something. So I, I really loved um, that sequence. I think it kind of uh, pushed a lot of people on ideas of like monogamy and just like uh, relationship norms. And I think it was fascinating to see like a, a non-cheating cheating sequence. I've just mm -hmm. never, I maybe I've just not seen the movie that's been inspired by that, but I feel like that's pretty original. Um, so I, I love that. And also just like the technical aspect again, like the, the blowing smoke scene is iconic yeah. at this point. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. It's a, it's a great shot. It's a great sequence. It's like, it's, it's going to be a part of my extra credits. I'm going to step on it now, but I'm just going to talk about it quickly. It's like both gross and sexy somehow. <laughs> it's like cigarette smoke, but it's also like weirdly like they're both like having a moment. Uh, so I, I, I love that. Um, mm -hmm. And I love how vulnerable they can be with one another in that sequence. So it was like the nicest cheating scene I've ever seen. <laughs> well, it's a conversation, right? I think that's the thing is that, yeah. Um, you know, in relationships, I think the the dialogue and the conversation um are something we're used to seeing not as prioritized in film when it comes to quote unquote cheating and intimacy generally right um intimacy is often as a screenwriter you often have to shortcut to like a visual image of intimacy and you don't do the like actual character uh work to get <laughs> the characters there right because you don't have a lot of time yeah. in a movie and so 
you you shortcut to like, and then they kiss, or you shortcut to like, you know, and then they jump into bed together. Mm-hmm. And it, it does get you there faster, but it doesn't have the poignancy uh, that this has or just the complexity that this has. And so I think that eliminating the familiar visual signals of intimacy, and in this case, unfaithfulness, um, I think by totally eliminating those, not that there are no visual signals here, but they're choosing, the movie is choosing new ones to assign to the characters, right? Um, where it's like they're smelling each other's sweat and they're like sitting on the bed and, <laughs> um, you know, she's sitting there, you know, and she's got her shoes off and they're like exchanging secrets. Um, it's doing the work in dialogue as well as like giving us unfamiliar images. And I think the combination of those two things is kind of what makes it more iconic and kind of captures the fascination and the excitement of meeting someone new that you connect with. Um, because if you really mm-hmm. connect with someone, you talk to them. It, you all, it always starts mm-hmm. by talking to them. And there's this interesting, you know, cheating is only whatever your partner wouldn't want you to do, right? So it's right. like right. There, yeah. there are these sort of like, general random vanilla rules about what is or isn't cheating but none of that matters because you can be in an open relationship you can be in a in a polygamous relationship you know um Mm -hmm. and uh and of course it's like what would axel rather his his partner be doing that night having sex with someone she'll never meet again or doing like incredibly intimate things with each other that you normally do six, you know, or 12 months into a relationship. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's like, they are telling themselves, Oh, this isn't cheating because of this BS rule set that exists out in the, the, the ether, you know, (laughs) about what cheating is, Mm -hmm. but, but that's not what matters. What they both know is our partners would not be happy if they saw us doing this, but we're both excited by each other and by this moment and we're going to do it anyway. Yeah. And it's interesting because it, it still is following this through line of ultimately she goes to that wedding, you know, uninvited because she wants to escape this moment where she feels happy for Axel at that book party, but she also feels lonely and sad. And so finding, um, Ivan is, is like a new way to, she's also excited by meeting someone new who she's interested in, but, also to escape uh, what what she's going through mm-hmm. and that kind of uneasiness that is introduced at the beginning of the movie. And so I also wanted to ask you all within like this first act when we go to the birthday party, her 30th birthday party, and we have that narration. Yeah. Um, did you all like that that kind of narration? It's something that uh, Joachim Chur comes back to in his movies, and I'm a personal fan of it, but I was wondering what you thought of it in her 30th birthday when it goes back through all the different tracks of where the woman were in her life when they were 30. Uh, yeah, I mean, I love it. I, I think that it, it provides important uh, context, I guess, for, again, this sort of generational situation that she's in and the particular position she finds herself in as a 30-year-old woman. Um, it's a good reminder. I, you know, it goes all the way back to, like, a gravestone that's like, And then this woman didn't live until 30 because the average lifespan was like 35 years Mm -hmm. old and that just, Mm -hmm. she didn't make it. And so there's, you know, there's this sense of Julie has inherited the benefit of being born at the time that she was born and she's able to be a mess at 30, which we know she is. And she has the privilege of being a mess at 30 by having been born in this generation. Um, She doesn't have to have been 
married off. She doesn't have to have had three kids. She doesn't have to be dead. You know, she doesn't have to have immigrated somewhere or the things that her, her great grandmothers and things were doing. And so I think it provides important context. Again, going back to this generational portrait of like, not that, not that this is the reason Julie is a mess, but just that this is, uh, I don't know, this is part of who she is or like how she got here. And it's part of what makes this story unique in this particular time. Yeah, and I think I think it's doing two things. One of which is exactly what you're saying, which is sort of being 30 today means something very different about being 30 exactly 50 years right. ago, 100 years ago, you know? Um, but then also it's she's around her family and how who is going to make you feel guilty about not having kids or not being married or whatever at a certain age, then your family said, well, your mother, when she was 30, she had that When your grandmother, when she was 30, she did that. So I think it's a little <laughs> bit, it's a little bit of a generational conversation, but it's also a conversation about um, the expectations that are put on you about what you should be doing based on society or based mm -hmm. on your family or based on those around you um, by this age or by that age, you know? Um, so I think it's, it's kind of cool that it does both those things at once. And it reinforces um, one of the things that I think this movie does spectacularly well, which is show us how much Julie uh, does reflect on her own life and do does think about herself. And I read a review of this, I think, today that was talking about how how well or how um, closely Julie attempts to listen to herself. Like, she never has any idea what she's saying. She never has any idea what she wants, but she is constantly thinking about herself and who she is. And I think the title is a reference to that, right? Like the worst person in the world, mm -hmm. you get no one calls her that in the movie, quite the opposite. People are keep, keep telling her that she's a good person. She's bright, she's clever, all of these things. Um, but the, this idea of Julie reflecting on her own identity, her own position in life, uh, it gives you the the narrator is again almost an inner monologue or almost julie thinking about herself or talking about herself in the third person and so it's again that reminder of like julie is reflecting on her life at 30 and thinking about what a mess she is in relationship potentially to all the other women that have gone before her yeah i also saw that the narration scene as like this these moments of like existential realization sure. <laughs> that, uh, like cut through right uh, a moment especially when you're maybe around family and and like you all said reflecting on kind of where people were uh, at her age and if she uh, is supposed to feel you know this this idea that she hasn't like met that if she doesn't also have those values and it introduces a lot of like interesting questions that get back to what we're talking about as a, a millennial movie mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah I mean I found myself at first wondering who the narrator was <laughs> in the most like basic sense. Like I sure. was like, is this a subconscious thing or is this like a future, like, is this Julie's great, great granddaughter reading her like social media accounts? And I was like having all these conversations <laughs> with myself about like, who is narrating this movie so perfectly throughout. But it is, I mean, to like what Trisha's saying, she is like at every point, every step of the movie, really interrogating every decision she's making um, to the point where she is the only person that believes she is the worst person in the world. And I think this right. is the first moment in chapter three where that becomes very clear that this movie was not this like, uh, a few men in a writing room trying to like write some kind of contrarian story about a, a woman's journey or like, a, like trying to further some kind of like stereotype um, about a woman in storytelling. It was very clear that this is like uh, she was 
basically being her own worst enemy uh, and going through these like self-destructive moments. Right. Yeah. Like a, yeah, a, the human story of uh, those existential moments too. Yeah. yeah. And I think, so then we can talk about act two, cause this is a whole new shift in Julie's life where we have the chapter five, bad timing where Ivan shows up at the bookstore. We have the breakup between Axel and Julie. And then we have chapter six where we see where Ivan's at, get a glimpse into his life and his relationship when he meets Julie and then chapter seven, a new chapter where they actually begin their relationship, Ivan and Julie. And, and then Julie's narcissistic circus <laughs> in um, the <laughs> mushrooms chapter eight. Yeah, um, and so I was wondering how you all uh, looked at this kind of act. We'll call it act two, I guess, for the, the movie and especially Axel and, and Julie's breakup into going into the Ivan and Julie relationship. Yeah. I just wanted to say quickly, I thought what was done really well, which is, I think one of you touched on it at the beginning, just Ivan, uh, the kind of character he was representing, the kind of contradiction of living in any stable society, industrialized world, and uh, trying to like live through that, and the kind of uh, grounding that Ivan gives to Julie in her life and trying to think about like her decisions and consequences. Mm -hmm. There was even a deleted scene on the uh, Criterion disc of like Julie trying to steal a chocolate bar and like Ivan like would not let her steal the chocolate bar. And it was really funny. I, I understand right, what took it out. He's out. like, I'll, we'll go ahead and uh, she has a chocolate bar, like ring that up. Please. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and there's just like moments like that scattered throughout that I, I really enjoyed. So I like how uh, I like what Trier does with romance where it kind of shows how every love that we have, whether it be platonic or romantic, is sort of an investment in a way. I mean, it's he, definitely not transactional. He seems like he's very antithetical to the idea of romance being like transactional, but it does something. it is something that you almost learn from other people. And I love that this act is kind of Julie learning more about herself through the people that she's meeting, like Ivan, and what he's able to show her and... I, I just also love the like the archetype of like the environmentally conscious millennial that is also going through their own worst person in the world. Yeah, what does he uh, say? Mentality. The, the sum of Western guilt, right? Like yeah. sat beside him on the couch. Sat beside him on the couch every <laughs> night. night. Yeah. yeah, we have that great uh, sequence of him walking through the grocery store stressed about every single impact the product is making on the climate. Yes, yeah. So I loved all that. Also, just th this is maybe a slight detour, but... I'm just thinking I like that there's not some huge clear difference in Axel versus Ivan. Like you can talk about how different their characters are. And I'm sure if they had scenes together, there'd be plenty of conflict because of because of their different character traits. But the movie's not interested mm -hmm. in being like, oh, she had to abandon this because she found the exact opposite, right? Like she had the really safe person that she had the really adventurous person or whatever it's like no they're they're both like she could have met them in the opposite order or even the actors could have played the opposite mm -hmm. roles and it would have worked you know um mm -hmm. at least again when compared to a lot of american cinema where it's like everything is trying to be the most extreme it can be about everything and it's <laughs> yeah. but, but again because the movie is more interested in what julie is going through from moment to moment you know so that i like that ivan is very much his own character he is not again he is not the same person as axel at all but the movie is not interested in being like look how different he is it's just about at this yeah. point in her life this is who julie is deciding to is deciding to be with and i guess we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about the breakup scene which of course is that midpoint mm -hmm. sequence um with the everybody's frozen and julie's running through the streets mm -hmm. to go find where axel works and everything and it's just beautiful yes. right it's just this mm -hmm. beautiful yeah. impressionistic 
highly stylized like let's let's show what it feels like to be in falling in love right and you're the only two people in the world that see each other you know and everything else is frozen and um but without without playing as being yeah sentimental or yeah gimmicky it feels really organic to the character again because of the pov of the movie we're so firmly parked in julie's pov that when that she flips that light switch on and Axel's standing there frozen pouring the coffee, we understand that what's happening is a feeling. It's not an event necessarily. Mm-hmm. It is a part of the like turning point, the internal turning point of the character. And whatever she chooses to say or do next is not going to be taking place during the sequence. It's this is the internal journey that she's on or the the sort of mental uh place that she's in where she's thinking about this thing and it is cool like when they first did it and she starts she goes out to the street and she starts running and everything's frozen i'm like oh she's going to the coffee shop and she's gonna get there and they're gonna kiss and then it'll like Mm -hmm. go back into real time and she's gonna be standing in the kitchen and it doesn't it keeps going and going i like he's surprised to see her (laughs) like in her own fantasy he's like (laughs) yeah exactly uh but it it sits in it for a while. Like it gives us again, that sense of passing time where this is not a, a momentary impulse that Julie is having as she's standing there in the kitchen with her hand on the light switch. It might start out that way or, but it comes to this mm-hmm. realization uh, that over probably a decent amount of time that she has come to this realization that she's going to make this decision. It's interesting that when we see leading up to that sequence we see how unhappy she is or just how how deeply she realizes she's in trouble and that things with axel are not sustainable there's like three or four little scenes of her looking very troubled um and then she walks into the kitchen and flips on the lights which she's instantly happy because she's in a fantasy but she understands that she's about to blow up a part of her life too Mm-hmm. Um, and it, we understand that it's a decision that unlike other decisions she might make impulsively, that there's been time and thought that's gone into this one. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's like she, when she actually breaks up with Axel and they have that conversation, she says, I feel like a spectator in my own life. I'm, I feel like I'm playing a supporting role in my own life. And I think mm-hmm. that, I love you, but I also don't love you. Exactly. Right. Tough. Yeah. Tough. <laughs> I think that the, the moment that frozen scene I, you can read it like surface level of of her finding love or or being in love, and that's the the how you feel like you're the only people in the world uh, in the city. But I think you know if we're looking at the tra- trajectory of her experience, it's also this uh, epiphany of like I I felt for a moment here that I was not a spectator in my own life, and I want to chase that. Mm-hmm. Like similar to how she keeps trying to escape from this unease throughout the movie. Yeah, I also, if we're going to talk about conceptual scenes, we should probably talk about the craziest one, which is the oh, mushrooms, yeah. which is the end of the <laughs> act. Um, I think, uh, I honestly, it took me a second when we first watched it to completely understand what was going on. Um, <laughs> and I think I was just taking in the fact that this was such a well-made project for only like a $4 million budget or something. I couldn't believe the low budget on this thing because it, it was it just looks so good. Mm-hmm. Um, but the idea of Julie kind of, finding like these like um being surrounded by all these men in her life that have kind of grabbed at a part of her throughout her life was fascinating i think this is the real kind of 
first moment of empathy the audience like truly has with her because mm-hmm. of that breakup and how I'm sure that breakup really impacted the audience, uh, most viewers and, and trying to see how it was unfair to Axel. I don't know if everybody was completely sympathetic to Julie, even though I was pretty immediately, I would, I can assume that not everyone was. And so this is a moment where we're not shown everything. We're not shown like her relationship with her father is a struggle, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, that the matching jacket, jackets. Yeah. yeah mm-hmm. It's killer. The matching jackets with the, with the new, yeah. Yeah, you know, daughter subtle. is is really tough um and i'm sure that did hit a lot of people uh and then all just these like random uh men's like hands like touching her body is like she's going like and showing her with an older body and just all the men that she's going to be with for their, her entire life and the kind of like anxiety of like being able to meet new people which is beautiful but also go through a whole life of meeting new people <laughs> them <laughs> taking a part of you and a piece of you that was very tragic so i thought that was really really well done and I also like just seeing like these small faces in the crowd that we saw at the beginning of the film that men she was with uh just like like for only like small moments and they come back so yeah she's seeing how people are reacting to her yeah much like her life exactly yeah and I also like that it's just doing thematic stuff you know it's it's just like that movie this movie easily could have just been like here's a here's a crazy shroom sequence look at it right. you know <laughs> but it's not like it's it's like here's yeah. here's kind of the drug version of of all the things that Jolie is dealing with in this story. So before we get to our extra credits, I want to just talk about the tragic ending of this movie, kind of through act three, where Axel reenters Julie's life and we have death introduced and uh, and kind of putting her life in perspective. We go through the, you know, the chapter nine with Axel on the radio, Bobcat like wrecks Christmas. And, and then we go to chapter 10 where Julie learns that Axel has cancer and chapter 11 where she finds out she's pregnant and goes to talk to Axel. And then our final chapter where everything comes to an end and Axel ends up dying and she has a, a miscarriage. And so I, I wanted to know because this movie isn't, I, I don't think it's looking for closure, but I was wondering how you all experienced it if you felt like it was an effective ending because we don't get close closure like we would in a, a traditional movie. Yeah. And also whether or not like the Axel Julie journey, like how you're saying we don't need closure, but whether or not it was like truly like, I felt like that journey was effective for me learning. Cause this movie is about Julie and like what she's learning from Axel, even though he is the one who is dying. And this is like a very literal existential fear now, like kind of materialized for him. It's not just like Julie's like nihilism about mm-hmm. what that all these possibilities in the world, like are weighing her down, stressing her out. So I think that relationship was really like effective, but I am curious, like what we think about also the like Ivan and Julie at the end, because it did feel like for me personally, it felt like a little bit abrupt. It's like my only like, I guess the, the first time I watched it, I didn't realize they had broken up until mm-hmm. I wouldn't see him again. Yeah. On the bed and like the kind of like, um, really sad hug and the crying of like, kind of mm-hmm. like we have to talk about us. Um, and, you know, the pregnancy and then going to the miscarriage and then the miscarriage going to the cancer and then Axel's like a death and actually like a beautifully tragic scene at the end of the movie where she's seeing the sunrise. Um, but so I'm not sure it's like a huge deal because I love the epilogue, but I didn't, I felt like they didn't really know what to do with the Ivan and Julie character. It's already kind of a long movie. It's at almost 120 plus yeah, minutes. It's like two hours, yeah. Um, so I'm assuming that there was probably something because it did feel sudden for me just because even though Ivan isn't the lead character there was so much there about their relationship that when the breakup happens they go from like the argument to pregnancy to miscarriage and then we kind of just we don't see really what happens between them Um, but did you guys like that aspect of the end or did you find that it was like a smooth transition for you yeah I mean I think that to your point Trey it 
really is about Julie's journey and her Julie and her journey is much more informed by the way that the third act unfolds with Axel, not with Ivan, um, where she is starting to come to grips with mortality and realizing that she's not going to be allowed to go on and be a mess forever or that the choices yeah. that she's making are going to have long-term consequences. Um, sometimes final consequences, right? Her choice to break up with Axel has the final consequence of she is not his partner at the time in his life when he is dying. Um, and I think that yeah. that's interesting. You know, we think about the, the traditional view of marriage has to do with like until death do us part. And for our, most people that are married that we expect that to come later, that comes much, much, much later in life. Um, and so bringing by bringing that forward in the timeline, uh, it gives Julie's actions and decisions, the gravity, the weight of long, long-term and sometimes final consequences. Um, and I think that that's really important for the character. And two, there's a, you know, sort of a beautiful grappling of, in terms of theme where Julie is contemplating becoming a parent um, and having children in, in film and in life is about legacy, right? And an immortality in some ways. If you end up having children, then you end up living forever in a sense, or potentially, right? You leave something behind after you pass away. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think that as Axel is realizing he does not want to die, which he says very clearly, he's like, I'm tired of pretending I'm okay with this. I don't mm -hmm. care about living on through the comics. I don't care about you remembering right. me. That's Those things are not as important to me. I just want to be alive. Right. He feels like right, he, is, live, yeah. mm -hmm, he feels like he's left things undone and he wants to continue to live. Uh, Julie has that option um, potentially as she's thinking about what to do with the pregnancy. And so I think that the movie does not provide an answer to those questions because there isn't necessarily a right answer to those questions. But just yeah. their finality and the weight of those questions, I think, are being correctly and very movingly weighted by the presence of having someone in the, in the film die. Um, these are questions that, you know, you can kind of mess around with maybe in your 20s and earlier and even into your 30s, maybe. But eventually you need to realize that you only get to make some of these decisions once. And whatever you decide at that turning point in your life is going to be the decision you made forever. The decision to leave Axel was the decision she made forever. It was not something she could ever walk back. And it's funny in their mm -hmm. breakup scene, not funny, I guess, but it, in their breakup scene, you know, they talk about the future, like, oh, maybe we'll get back together someday. She, and he's like, maybe and he's like, you'll regret this. She's like, I'm sure that I will. But that doesn't change her decision in the moment there's still this open-endedness to maybe I will get back together with him someday. And then the, the door is being closed. Like some of these paths, when you, once you decide not to go down that road, you will not ever be able to backtrack to that path and make a different choice. Um, you made the choice you mm -hmm. made and it goes forward from there. Um, and it, for some people it ends. And so I think that that's why this film has this uh, really moving finale to me is that we don't necessarily know what happens to Julie at the end of her life, but this flightiness and her, her lack of, again, she doesn't like to do work. She likes to have fun. So she doesn't, by the end of the movie, 
she's doing work. Um, and even though she decided mm -hmm. not to stay with Ivan, um, she's learned that, hey, I can't, I don't always get to have fun because the decisions that I'm making are long term and they're very serious. Yeah, it reminded me of the before trilogy where oh, yes. uh, they yeah. have that moment of like, you know, you don't have, you come to realize that you only have a few really strong connections in your life. And that like perspective is really has stakes at that point when exactly point right. Movie. Yeah. Um, but yeah, on, on the topic of, uh, of, of Ivan, I, I feel like I just don't even think about him at the end of the movie. And like, that's no discredit to his character but it just again i'm just worried like i'm just thinking about julie and it's funny because i was looking i was like i think we did an episode on our podcast about a, about a a character who i was like i don't really care who they end up with at the end and i was looking back and i was like it was either ladybird or amelie or pride and prejudice but it's like all <laughs> stories about women often with two romantic interests but I find myself going, and again, this is why I feel, you know, it's sort of not traditional romantic comedy where it's like, here's two people, maybe there's a third person, but that third person's kind of an obstacle or there's each person has kind of their obstacle, but you're like, no, no, I just want these two people to get together at the end. And all four of these movies, I think I'm just, I'm way more interested in the specific journey that the character is going on at the end than anything. So to me, I feel like there's a ton of closure at the end of the movie. Yeah, there could, maybe it does skip over like whatever the kind of finale with Ivan is in the story. But I'm just like, no, I, I don't need her to be with anybody. I just need her to kind of go through the, go through the journey she needs to go through and come out right. where I'm like, now the next person she meets, hopefully she'll be in the right, in the right place to do, you know, or she doesn't need to meet anybody who cares. That's not what's important here. What's important is that Julie has, has kind of gone through this gauntlet and come out a better person. For sure. My my only thing with Ivan was that like I thought through Axel she learned um a little bit more about what Trisha's saying, basically about mortality and the literal mortality of people who are actually dying instead of feeling like you're purposeless and trying to conflate those two things, which is something you learn as you grow up. But so I thought that was really smart. But through like Ivan's character, I found that like I I was wishing there was something that they they learned more about one another, but ultimately they were both just kind of seeing a connection in themselves of both being a little bit purposeless and a little bit uh, anxiety, like almost like uh, full of anxiety. And um, I guess I just wish that was a little bit like further developed because we do kind of get this bookend with Axel sort of, of him kind of reassuring her uh, because she finally gets like what, uh, he, he wanted with her and like he, she gets the option to like have start a family uh, even though like his you know he's dying and he's going to die and this is not going to be a part of his family and that's incredibly tragic so there's at least something there so I was, I was hoping there was something else but ultimately I love the ending because Julie is finding purpose in herself and I think what's most impressive about the worst person in the world is how like creatives tackle the economics of love, like seeing what Trier is doing here with trying to reframe love and connection and not make it transactional, I think is very helpful. And he is investigating like how we are negotiating, wanting to both have like comfort of connection, but also the creative freedom to fail and how we need to sometimes like just be isolated and be with ourselves. And we have to focus on loving ourselves in order to like truly love others. Mm -hmm. And I think the epilogue really shows that very well. It kind of highlights the 
difficulty of negotiating these like human needs and how we can manufacture and romanticize our futures to justify poor decisions in the moment. And seeing Julie at the end in her, in her room, uh, is not sad at all. It's actually like a, like a beautiful ending. And yeah, the she's only reason surrounded by the plants and yeah, mm-hmm. she's surrounded by life, life yeah. and she likes what she's doing and she's taking photos of people in moments. Um, and she's creating like these still moments for her and she's kind of an editor too. And I, I think that is beautiful. And, uh, I just think a really, it's a really important message at the end of a movie that somebody needs to love themselves first before they can love anyone else. If they're going through a really difficult time, which again, reminds me of a Francis Ha or a Lady Bird mm. uh, film. So, yeah. So let's go ahead and get to our extra credits then. Okay, yeah. let's do it. So in our extra credits, we are each going to choose what element of the movie deserves more recognition. Your extra credit can be anything that amplifies the story's message. To make it more interesting, we'll each choose only one extra credit. Trisha, Brian, you are guest. Which one of you would like to go first? Who's going to do it? <laughs> uh, I'll go first. Um, I, I'm a sucker for any movie with... Uh, that just uses it doesn't have to be surrealist imagery but just uses the fact that it's a movie and you can do stuff you know what i mean like and that's that's, whether that's score whether that's cinematography whatever but i love you know if a movie obviously you have your like your you know film school art projects where it's like and the candle burned out fiend you know um (laughs) but like but i feel like so many movies are just let's point the camera at some characters and then the movie will be over and that works fine for some movies you know but i feel like this movie is brought to the next stratosphere with its light switch scene and you know the drug scene is fun but i feel like the light switch scene is just that's what that's what people remember when they see this movie and i think the movie would be great without it but i think that it to me it's what makes it feel like this this whole other thing I love that the the music is so peaceful in during while she's running. It could have been this big bombastic kind of romantic score. It could have been, you know, even something more fun, like a, like a beat or something. But it's just like she's just running through this very still world, you know. And, and it, to me, I'm just like, oh. And that was in all the trailers and stuff, so I knew it was kind of coming. But that's still yeah. the moment in the movie where I lean forward and go, wow, this movie just went from being like a really just interesting story about a character to like this is this is something you know this is really something special um and as i said even the even the drug sequence it's like hey let's use this moment to do something thematic let's talk about the character let's talk about the story rather than just kind of here's a five minute like you know bizarre sequence for no purpose um so yeah i would i would definitely give extra credit to any movie that uses uses the medium of film to do something interesting and symbolic and uh, and kind of sometimes off the wall, especially when it's doing it for, mm-hmm, yeah. for a clear purpose. Yeah, mine, I guess, has to do with the femininity of the character and the specificity of the fact that she is a woman who, in this case, dates men, um, as far as we know, is straight and is in the position of dating men in the in her particular time period, which is that there is a complexity to that, right? There's a very specificity, uh, a very specific situation that she finds herself in, and we kind of get touches of it throughout. But I can't think of very many examples where, um, like, sort of modern feminist conversation comes into the foreground in the relationship at, at certain moments. Um, 
so you know you have her article where it's oral sex in the age of me too and she writes this sort of inflammatory article uh about what that's like you know in her situation and um like can you still be a feminist if you enjoy this kind of sex and these questions that she's sort of asking um and acknowledging that there's a power dynamic in the relationships that she's having um with men uh just because of by virtue of the fact that she's a woman and the world is what it is so we get that with the grandmothers that we hear about we get it in her relationship with Axel, who is kind of sexist, let's be honest, <laughs> or at least mm-hmm. his art yeah. would, ha- yeah. yeah, his art certainly, you know, strays into that territory. And we see him getting ripped apart on the radio by these two women. Um, and then also her relationship with her father. There's a power dynamic here. And so this is not just, and, and Julie has to wrestle with that. She has to wrestle with what does it mean that I happen to be attracted to men? <laughs> and that's complicated um in this situation and she's aware of that complication even when she meets axel it's mentioned right she's like she's only seen one one comic of his and it was vaguely sexist to her um and she still goes out with him right so i think i think there's this it's very present in the movie it's very deliberately present in the movie of what is it like to be a woman who dates men and happens to be attracted to men in a world that is not equal yet and never has been. Um, and her floundering and her, um, the complications of her life choices trying to find herself, that's an element of it. That specificity of being essentially a straight woman in 2022 is wrapped into 2021, I guess is when the movie came out, is wrapped into the character in a way that feels real. Um, at least to someone like me <laughs> who's in a long-term relationship with a male partner. So it's, it's very, yeah. it's very well observed. And so I'm, I'm, we typically only get this ring of truth. At least I only typically hear this ring of truth um, from female screenwriters and directors. And so it's refreshing to get it uh, from actually a male writer and director here. Yeah. Yeah. I think in my extra, extra credits, I'll talk about, cause I meant to mention it, but there were a few reviews, uh, oddly from men that were like critical of uh of Trier for writing the script from a woman's perspective and Mm -hmm. I'll just I'll just like note some of those things because ultimately I agree with everything Trisha just said because you can feel how uh authentic he wanted to make Julie and his co-writer evoked so we'll get into that in a little bit too um and so I'll go with my extra credit it's um actually connected to Brian so uh with the light switch scene but my extra credit is this storytelling that Trier is able to capture as we experience Julie's life. So Axel, when at towards the end of the movie, when he says, I remember things about you that you probably don't remember about yourself. That was a moment that clicked for me where I said, Oh wait, I realized that we are only spending time with Julie in her head. Rarely do we see her in the lens of other people or how other people see her or participating in life. Mm -hmm. Um, We get like small, you know, glimpses when she's kind of dancing around when they're playing bocce ball um, or or different moments where she's in conversation. But mostly we aren't really let into that part of her life because that's not what she's focusing on. And so I, I wanted to talk about two scenes that are a good example of looking at her story through the moments in her head and how people sometimes and Julia especially categorizes her life into these moments of either feeling lost or 
in the light switch scene, like feeling this exhilaration uh, when she has a realization. So the first scene I wanted to to talk about where she, it's a really good example of her in her head and it's really subtle, is when she's leaving Axel's party and we get this gorgeous shot of her walking home down that highway mm. this is before she goes into the wedding. And she stops to overlook the city and starts to cry and, and feel overwhelmed. And I think there's this tension between her overlooking this opportunity that she sees in the city, uh, but also her feeling like, why don't I feel happy right now? Which I, I think is really interesting. And I think we, when, when people are looking back at their lives, you can, you can categorize a moment where you felt lost before. And I, so I think that Trier does a good job, even though we, you know, might not do, I might not do the same things as Julie throughout this movie or, you know, agree with her choices throughout. We can all like identify with that moment or uh, us reflecting on our lives in that way and be able to pinpoint a, a point when we were lost, like her walking down that highway. And then the second scene, the light switch scene is this, uh, you know, opposite point that we kind of remember these moments of feeling like she, like you're frozen time and you've realized something or you've had an epiphany uh, where she's running through that same exact city that she was overlooking and was feeling defeated. Uh, but she has this whole different perspective, but only for a fleeting moment, you know, like she's, she's running through and, and it feels like she's the only person in, in the city. And then, uh, you know, uh, Ed, Ivan joins her and they feel like they're the only people in the city, but when the sun rises, you know, she has that, that realization with a beautiful shot of the, just the close up of both of them looking at each other that, okay, this is ultimately, we're going to have to come back to reality and we're going to have to obviously hurt someone we love, but ultimately this leap that we're taking could just end up in the same place that we're basically, I was before I, I flipped this light switch. And so I just wanted to give extra credit to those two scenes um, as examples of the, I think, expert storytelling of us living in Julie's head throughout this movie and mm. doing that visually. Because I think that's really Im impressive to do. And we're able to see the different kind of ups and downs in her life um, through these visual moments. And they feel very, um, very unique to storytelling where, like we've been talking about in the podcast, you would you might see that in dialogue or you might see that in a fight, but we're really in these quiet moments with her. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I find that, um, I think my extra credit is gonna be similar to yours and then a mix of Brian's. Cause I think Brian put it better than I could have. Cause I, I was like writing down notes for like what I was trying to basically sound more fancy than I need to. Like this movie just does a lot of stuff with film <laughs> and it like is able to do it really well on every aspect of the movie. And it, is I think I said at the top almost like uh, musical in the way it's shot yeah. and put together. I love two scenes in particular. Kelsey, the one you just talked about, of course, that is a huge one. And I think Brian talked about that one too. Uh, not just thematically, but just the way it is layered out. I uh, want to start with the one about the not cheating, which I kind of already stepped on. But the sequence where Julie and, uh, is it Elvind? I keep forgetting Ivan. his name. Ivind. Ivind are outside and the frame kind of slows down and the music is blasting and Julie blows smoke in Ivan's mouth and mm -hmm. the French new wave like style aside like I just thought that was a really interesting experimental choice because uh, these two people are doing something romantic and exciting but they're also two lost people who are kind of nihilistically privileged in how they're lost and that that is something that is like not 
interrogated I, I, at all. I, I find in movies and storytelling about lost internet generation people that about maybe the privilege of being lost. And I mm-hmm. think there is a moment in that sequence that there, that there is something that they're both aware of, which even makes them uh, kind of even um, more gone <laughs> in a certain way. Uh, but like I said, it is both like gross and sexy too. So there's that going on <laughs> with the cigarette smoke. So I just love that there are contradictory feelings in that moment without dialogue that just really works for me. But then the privilege of being uh, lost is made clear in the second scene, I think deserves extra credit where there's no dialogue is where Julie goes to see Axel for the first time at the hospital. And it's kind of a polar opposite moment thematically. The music is like pounding and Axel is like drumming away Mm -hmm. in like a whiplash Scorsese-esque scene. Uh, It felt actually, there were moments in this movie that I was like, this feels Chazelle inspired. Maybe I'm just Chazelle head right now because we did Babylon recently, but uh, it did feel like a La La Land and whiplash inspired at moments, but his movies are obviously heavily inspired by Scorsese. Uh, yeah, that but, whip pan when he's drumming. Yeah, and, oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah, his hands. Yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> I love that when he's when he's stomping his foot and it's coming up. I'm probably editing that music in right now while I'm talking. <laughs> uh, but when he's doing that and it's carrying on, I found myself elevating a little bit out of my seat. And I love when filmmakers and their team can do that, and especially moments where there is no dialogue. what's important about that moment is Julie sees uh, I guess a little bit more of herself truthfully when she sees that her life the way she's kind of been in her own head and being kind of like um, self-obsessed in a way and she sees like Axel like literally dying like he is the one who is lost in this moment Mm -hmm. and he is the one who's reflecting on like what could have been and the things he's collected along the way which made me rethink our like book and movie collections too when (laughs) when I was hearing him talk about those things uh and just like, I guess, reflecting on, on mortality. So just those two scenes being at the end of the first act with Ivan and Julie, and then the, kind of the start of the third act with, with Julie seeing uh, Axel in the hospital bed and kind of literally materializing like what they were actually afraid of, I thought was really well done. So I want to give mm-hmm. extra credit to Trier and his team using the power of film without like a single word written. Mm-hmm. And everything mm-hmm. is everything is uh, said through what is shown, what is heard and what is felt. And that's like a really difficult balance uh, and it's rarely pulled off. So I thought that was excellent. I love the moment that Kelsey mentioned about her kind of looking over the, you know, over the horizon and just kind of taking that, that, that breath, you know, and both my partner and I, we'd seen the movie before, but we're just like, that's the moment, right? Like That's the moment where she goes, <laughs> Oh, I need something else. And yeah, there's so much that's done with that dialogue. It almost reminds me of um, no coach for old men where he, uh, Josh Brolin like finds the finds the trucks and everything and then he goes back home and then he's lying in bed and he just goes <laughs> okay and then he gets up and brings the lottery you know what I mean and it's just like that little moment where it's, there's technically a line there but it, you don't even need it right it's just it, the movie is is telling you so much without dialogue mm-hmm. 
Okay, so those are great extra credits. Uh, so in our extra extra credit segment, we're almost out of here. This is our last part of the podcast. We always try to add whatever we feel is um, maybe in something that we want to highlight about the movie that we didn't talk about or an issue about the movie. Uh, I think I wanted to talk about just um, what Trisha was talking about with the kind of like this movie being a powerful woman's story and being authentic in that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there were some criticisms from David Elrich and Richard Brody. I was looking for the author's names. Uh, well, Richard Brody famously uh, being highly critical of many movies, um, but <laughs> many good movies. But there were uh, there are powerful names in film criticism that were that felt Trier was using Julie as a as an archetype more than a fully realized character to continue telling his coming of age stories. And I wanted to just note one thing that I thought was important. We learned on the featurette that wasn't. I don't think that was really talked about when the movie was being shown. But uh, Renata. Uh, Reinsfa has talked about how she left notes on the script and contributed quite a lot mm. to the gender aspects of the storytelling. Yeah. And that's very clear. And like uh-huh. what Trisha was explaining. Yeah. Yeah. And so <laughs> you can feel that. Uh, and yeah. And she said in the behind the scenes featurette on the criterion disc that she felt that this movie uh, was obviously about gender was obviously about a woman's journey and all those things had to ring true. And that's why she had to leave notes on the movie yep. and she felt compelled to, but also it was about gnawing at the unease of being lost in your young adult years. Uh, and I think Trier, you know, has said that he understands the questions about who the writer should have been. Cause he was asked a lot in mm-hmm. press and he seems to be like aware that people kind of criticized the character and that some people felt the writing of Julie would have furthered this like manic pixie dream girl stereotype that I hope is dying, but that is something that mm-hmm. people were worried about. And Trier in all of his interviews made it like clear that his goal was to get audiences to empathize with Julie and that he doesn't write antagonist figures in any of his movies. Like the antagonist is kind of like ourselves in all of, all of his films and society and the way it pressures you. So I just wanted to note that because I wanted people to like be aware that there were notes left on this uh, character from a woman's perspective, though I will say it would have been like a really easy thing for probably Reinsfo to have had like a kind of just like a writing credit on this. Yeah. Uh, It reminds me of The Last Duel. I don't know if either of you saw that film from Mm -hmm. last year, but they Mm -hmm. added Nicole Hall Center into the third act of that movie and doing Marguerite's story. But originally Ben uh, Ben Affleck and Matt Damon were going to write that part of the story and that would have been wildly more complicated i'm yeah i'm glad that we're having more if if there's a story like about a a woman like having a woman writer on it it's nice that uh you know renata Rensby was uh had notes on the script but i do also think it would have been uh maybe a easy you know yeah, uh, just on a, for movies writer. to age well. But I mean, Trier has made it really clear that Julie like isn't an antagonist. He knows the writers uh, that have written woman in that way in problematic senses that they can be like sometimes trying to be ironic or I guess in the most ill-intended ways that can be contrarians by like criticizing identities that aren't their own out of their own insecurities. But I thought he did a good job of like writing Axel as a sexist. It was kind of a way to like straw man or get ready, get ready for those kind of criticisms because uh, the woman who were interviewing uh, Axel in that podcast, uh, like Trisha was saying, like they were doing a good job, like interrogating his work and he wasn't realizing his own insecurities and he was busy, like critiquing men that were, I guess, lesser than him, but he didn't realize he was in that group. Um, so anyways, I just thought yeah, that was successful. It, co- it I comes back to, to kind that. of like the asking, like, what's the purpose of the art then? Because he's talking yeah. about how his art was ultimately supposed to be messy and it was supposed to interrogate insecure men, but if there's not a clear purpose, like in worst person of the world, where we are, we have a clear purpose of someone finding themselves and having a, a human story uh, being told, then 
then what, who are you kind of serving with, with that art? And so, yeah. um, yeah. And I also, ultimately, I think that the worst person in the world was a really, um, interesting. And like we talked about at the top of, of the movie, unique millennial story, um, about what Julie is going through. Yeah. 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 Just one more final point on the, uh, women as writing and telling their own stories. I think that uh, this clicks a lot for me. I didn't know that Renata Reinsev had, had contributed to the script. Um, and obviously, right. <laughs> like, uh, because the parts mm-hmm. that, the parts that for me, uh, landed really well, um, in the complications of, uh, being a woman in, in her particular position, um, just, it's really hard to capture, <laughs> um, if you don't yeah. know what that's really mm-hmm. like. And so, um, it reminded me a lot though of Kim Kreisen and Julie Delpy, who have always co-written the before trilogy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Who mm-hmm. have always contributed, um, to the writing of those films. And so I think, yeah, just a good reminder for men and male filmmakers. It's not that you can't tell women's stories. It's just that maybe you should also let women <laughs> contribute uh, at the very <laughs> least and credit them. That yeah. would be great too. Yeah. If you could do that. On that note, I'll do my um, extra, extra credit, which is just Renata Reinsma's performance. It's It was one of my favorite mm, yeah. this year, Incredible. if not my favorite. And, Amazing. Uh, yeah. And, you know, not only does she, like, just look great, like, in terms of, you know, like, the costuming and, like, the way that she shot and everything, mm-hmm. um, but she's so... Uh, she's just so empathetic and so dynamic in her performance and just so sort of just watchable, you know? Um, and uh, mm-hmm. And I think that that's a big part of it. And I do think... You know, you hear stories, whether it's the Before Trilogy or Harrison Ford uh, a lot of times or here where it's like the the main actor is like, look, I would like to have some input in what this character is doing. And that way I can play the role better. I can I'll say a line mm-hmm. that my mouth says better than the line that's written here or that I would actually want to say <laughs> or whatever it is, you know, um, just just knowing kind of what feels comfortable. And uh, and she just feels comfortable is a really good word i think for how she feels in this role she just it just feels like so so seamless you know um and uh and yeah really really love it yeah and i just have two quick extra credits before um we we get to the end here uh one just when they're sitting in the cafeteria trier does this throughout his movies but he shows a conversation and instead of showing the dialogue in real time you have moments of them just gazing at each other and you hear the overlapping dialogue and I love that because it's able to capture this idea of the feeling that you have after a conversation um, versus processing and it and analyzing it in real time and it, it adds to this kind of dreamy idea of of remembering someone gazing at you and the feeling you got from a conversation that continues in all his movies and sort of connected to my extra credit this idea of what you're thinking during a conversation versus moving the plot along with mm-hmm. the conversation, which I think is amazing in his movies. Um, and the second thing that I noticed on watching again, I don't know if you all did at the end of the movie, Axel tells us that he remembers these stained windows, the red, yellow, blue. And we, we look out through the tinted windows mm-hmm. at his old neighborhood. And I realized we actually start the movie like that. Um, there's a red, yeah, yeah. yellow and blue uh, screen mm-hmm. as we get the credits before we see. Yeah, Renata. with the production yeah. companies and the distributor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was and cool. I just love that. Yeah, yeah. 
this has been fun. I understand it's a difficult movie for us to talk about and dive deep, deep into because it is layered. But thank you guys for so much for coming on to talk about The Worst Person in the World. It's one of our favorite movies, and you both seem like the, the perfect co-host on an episode like this because of what you all do on beyond the screenplay so a reminder to listeners go listen to trisha and brian yes. uh, on beyond the screenplay and which you can find in our description we also have two other co-hosts uh they you are all great all four of you uh please don't take it back to them that i only said that you two are great but that's <laughs> between us. i'm calling them right uh, now <laughs> um yeah you can follow their podcast in our description please do that and their socials and follow and subscribe to their uh their patreon too which is really great if you like what uh kelsey and i do here giving extra credit and finding meaning in your favorite films and television and our favorite films and television then you'll love their show it is very similar so we'll get, go ahead and link all their work in our podcast everyone go support thank you guys for coming on thank you guys thanks for having, thanks for having us spring.